very much, Ant and Helen. We love being with you. We love being with your community, with your church family. It is for us a really great privilege uh, to be with you. Um, you know that Germans, they have some stereotypes about the English people. And um, I, uh, I enjoy to actually come here and to get a little confirmation of the stereotypes by which you are known. Um, particularly, I enjoyed yesterday the famous English politeness. Um, we went to the museum yesterday and we stayed there till a little bit after quarter, after half past five. Uh, half past five is closing time and uh, uh, the, the manager or whoever was responsible came to me while I was looking at an exhibit and he said to me, dear sir, and, and, and that already, it was like, oh, it was like, no, nobody calls me dear sir. In Germany, in Germany, they say, hey, you. <laughs> and then he said to me, since you're so interested in our museum, I heartily welcome you to return tomorrow at 12 o'clock. <laughs> in Germany, we would say, I told you we close at 5.30. <laughs> so I've been really enjoying the British people. You are fantastic. You are fantastic. I would like to tell you a story at the beginning, <clears throat> which I claim to be true in all details and happened exactly the way I tell you. In <laughs> in 1993, a man by the name William Demsel, whose name has not been altered for journalistic reasons, wakes up on a beautiful and sunny day to go to work. And unfortunately, he's a little too late because he overslept. Because William is a Christian, the first thing that comes to mind when he realizes that he overslept is, why God? Why did you let me oversleep? Then he continues his, you know, his morning activities, goes to the train station much later than he usually is at the train station. At about 10 o'clock there, he meets a young man who is also waiting for the train. He greets him, the young man greets back, and then there is some small talk. And after some small talk, they decide they sit to sit together in the train. After some small time of small talk, William musters up all his strength, all his courage that he has had, and after some still prayers to his Lord, he breaks out the question to the young man in front of him, and he says, are you a Christian? Because he wants to stir the conversation to his faith in the Lord Jesus. The young man, uh, having grown up in an atheistic family, tells him the story and says, literally, well, you know, it's like I have stolen very little in my life. I have lied very little. And when there is elderly gentlemen wanting to cross the road, I help them. So I assume that qualifies for being a Christian. As a, res as a response, William takes out his little pocket Bible and he laughs and says to the young man, young and this is not the way it works let me read to you what constitutes a genuine Christian. And he reads to the young man a story from John chapter 1, where Jesus himself being Almighty God, the creator of the universe, becomes a human being, comes to his own people, to his own Jewish people, to his own Jewish nations that he had formed, and is rejected, is put on the cross by the very people that are supposed to be his own possession. But then comes a wonderful promise in John chapter 1 in verse 12 where it reads, 
but to those who receive him, as a contrast, to those who believe in his name, to them he gives the right to become children of God. And that young man didn't understand very much because he didn't have much religious training or religious background, but something happened to his heart, and just the words, become a son of God, become a child of God, touched his heart, and so William advised him, since they are now arriving at the train station where they were going, and said to him, well, why don't you go to a bookstore and buy a Bible? Strangely enough, this was something that really caught the attention of that young man, and he goes to a Methodist bookshop, which is right there at the train station, goes in and requests to buy a Bible, to which the bookshop owner says, well, which Bible? Which was very confusing to the young man, because up until that day, he believed there's only one Bible. And now he has to choose from a wide variety of Bibles of different colors, different shapes, and different forms. So he replies and he says, I'd like a little black one. It's about this high. Um, it has a red marking in front and says Bible right there. And there is something in it that is strangely alive. And interestingly enough, the bookseller has exactly that kind of book. So the young man wants to buy it, but then he realizes something curious. He realizes that that Bible that he is about to buy is very small. And all the other Bibles on the shop are very big. So he asked the bookseller and, and uh, uh, says to him, well, explain to me why is this Bible that I'm buying so small and the others are so big, to which the man behind the counter replies something that has to do with Old Testament, New Testament. The young man doesn't understand a thing, but he realizes the small one is only half the deal. It is only sort of the concentrated truth, but not the whole truth. So that day, that young man buys two Bibles, the concentrated truth and the whole truth. He wants to have that small one, and he wants to have the big one. He goes home, and in his home, he starts to read. And then something very curious happens a couple of weeks later. As he reads, and mostly doesn't understand anything that he reads, he suddenly has serious doubts whether what he is doing is actually anything useful or whether he is not getting religiously deceived. And as he has this Bible in his bedroom, he sort of puts it away, and he sort of, in this inner man, just sort of speaks or prays to the God. He doesn't know that he's there, and he says, I'm actually a little bit afraid that I'm perhaps being deceived by something religious thing here. I don't even know if God exists. And then something very interesting happens. At that, at that moment, in his bedroom, the presence of Almighty God shows up, and something happens to the heart of that young man. He is instantly convicted and convinced within a split second that God is real. And then suddenly that feeling changed and that young man feels an incredibly intrinsically beautiful love for him. And now you have to, you have to understand this. From the background of that young man, he doesn't come from a dysfunctional family. He d doesn't have any uh, uh, drug problems or whatever. He was just a normal, regular guy. There was no need of ho love whole that somehow you know, was dysfunctional and needed to be filled. But he felt a love that he never felt before. And that melted his heart. And for the first time, he prayed to God from the depth of his heart. And he said, God, it was always about my career, my money, my fame, my glory. And now suddenly, I never did ever anything for you. You come and you love me. Why is that? The next thing that happened is also very curious because that man has a vision. He's not even a Christian yet, 
not to mention even the charismatic or Pentecostal, but he has a vision of Jesus standing in front of him, and Jesus speaks to him and says to him, I am the good shepherd, you are the stubborn sheep, I was often pursuing you, but you were always running away, now turn around and follow me. And that young man who had always maybe considered the possibility that there is a God, but had always a dislike towards Jesus. I don't know why, but somehow Jesus was never attractive to him. Suddenly saw Jesus and he realized he is asking me to follow him. And something broke in his heart and he knelt down and he said, you are so beautiful, you are so precious, I want to follow you wherever you go. A couple of days later, that young man is now about on the verge to become a really messed up personality because he starts to read in the book of Revelation, which is dangerous. <laughs> and he reads the words that Jesus speaks to the, to, the, to the church of Laodicea, where he says, I wish you were whole, cold or hot, but now you're lukewarm. I will spit you out of his mouth. And the same Lord that appeared to him earlier now speaks to him in his heart again. And he says, if you want to follow me, I will take you, but I will not take you 20% and I will not take you 96%. I will take you either 100% or not at all. At which time that young man again felt overwhelmed by the privilege that somebody is interested in all his life and not just part of it. And he kneels down at the kitchen table and he says, Lord Jesus, have my all. Now there is one unfortunate thing about that story. It has one disadvantage. It happened in Africa where all those wonderful miracle stories happen that you never can prove to be true or not. And in fact, that William Damsel already died, went on with the Lord. The only recourse is to find the young man in the story, and that's the one who's speaking to you now. That is my story. I have to be honest, I am predisposed to a certain theological convictions from the time I became, a I became a Christian, I had an openness for the miraculous intervention of God. I need no convincing that there are visions. I needed no convincing that God can supernaturally intervene into a person's life and speak to them. I had them before I was a Christian, and they did not lead me to Satan. They led me to Christ. I have to also admit that I am predisposed, even though we are not accepting theological on the base of experience, but I am predisposed to acknowledging that becoming a Christian is ultimately based on Christ sovereignly encountering a man and changing his heart. It is not left up ultimately to the free will of man. Yes, we need to freely choose Christ, but ultimately, if Christ did not choose us first, if he does not encounter us first, we will always make a decision against him. I am predisposed towards these positions, and I tell you in front of it because I will tell you about them today. <laughs> um, and, I, and I will tell you from the text. I chose my own story because the text which I was assigned from and um, uh, will illustrate, or, or what I told you will illustrate uh, uh, of the text that, uh, that Anne gave me to preach from. And I would like to read with you together. Um, I, I assume you are going uh, on, a, on a whole journey in the Gospel of Mark. I want to read with you Mark chapter 3, 
from verse 7 to verse 19. And uh, maybe we can do something, a little bit, something liturgical here. Um, since we hardly have any liturgy, let's stand together and let's read together the text and as a sign of respect. Yeah, just okay. As, as a sign of respect towards the Word of God, let's read, let's read that text together. Mark chapter 3, verse 7. And thank you for the, for the PowerPoint. Should be, should be. We'll wait. Oh, there we go. Verse 7. Let's read together. Everybody, loud. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him. And from Judea and from Jerusalem and Edomia and beyond the Jordan. And those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that the small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And he up on the mountain and called to him those who sell. And they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to him he gave the name Bonergus, that is, son of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphys, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Thank you very much. Please take a seat. This is the, this is the strangest text that anyone ever asked me to preach upon. Uh, <laughs> uh, give me a list of names and preach, upon, preach from those. But it is very interesting that yet though this, par this passage apparently contains not much sophisticated theological revelation, on closer examination, it opens up heavy weight and profound theological insight. Be excited of what will happen. First of all, I would like to go with you and have a look at the structure of the book because where our story is located uh, in the whole book will, uh, have, uh, um, will have impact into the meaning of the text itself. So where are we? Um, Mark chooses to structure his book uh, in three huge chapters, or chapters not the right way, but three huge blocks. So if the reader reads and he says, I don't have time to read the whole material, all 16 chapters at once, th those, you know, three-partite division is a good, you know, good place to read through and to read just a couple of chapters. And we, we see that, uh, that this is the structure of Mark, that there is indications um, in the grammar, in the kind of words he uses, in the movement that Jesus takes. So here we have, apart from the introduction, three main chapters. The, the first one starts till chapter 8, verse 41. And the topic is Jesus' work in Galilee and in the surrounding region. From chapter 8, verse 22 till chapter 
verse 52, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. And from chapter 11 till chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus is in Jerusalem. And the theme is the temple, the cross, and the resurrection. And each three big blocks uh, of, of those huge sections are always asking the same question. This is the central theme of the Gospel of Mark. They ask the question, who is this Jesus? And then the first block, it is the question, who is this Jesus in light of his authority, in light of how he is doing and what he is doing with his, with his authority? In the second part, we have the question, who is this Jesus? And it, is con it, it emphasizes the disciples' puzzlement about who that is whom they follow. And then in the last section, we, ha we have signs uh, and, and, and miracles that that show that Jesus is the promised Messiah and the question is who is this messianic king so when we are uh, when we move into the first block which chapter 3 is part of um, please can I have the next uh, the next uh, uh, slide we see that that part again is subdivided into another three smaller sections so that big block in the middle is now uh, contains now three sections again these sections uh, have a, uh, as you can see, uh, uh, have almost go in a circle and they always have the same topics. They always have the same material. They start with a preview about what is to happen. Then comes the calling or the sending out of the disciple. Then is the big chunk of miracle material and the section always ends with enmity or unbelief concerning who Christ is. And as you can see in verse 7 till 6 right there in the middle, so we are right in the middle, we are with chapter 3, verse 7, and the text that we have read together until verse 19, right in the preview of what is about to happen. That was the first section. And we are in uh, uh, subsection B, the sending out of the disciples. So, having seen that, um, we realize that when we read about Jesus ministering to the big crowds and rebuking the demons, it is, in a one sense, it is a continuation of a theme, what already happened, happened and it previewed of what will happen in the next section. And so I would like uh, to go with you um, and have a little rehearsal of what already did happen, what happened in those sections before and uh, in those miracle sections. So you will recall in chapter 1, verse 16 to 20, Jesus calls the first disciples. And the idea is here, he calls them with authority. Because did you ever notice that when Jesus calls the disciples, he walks along the shore he sees Peter, the fisherman, and he says, Peter, leave your nets and follow me. And Peter leaves everything to follow Jesus. That is like, you know, Jesus coming to your business that you worked hard to establish. Jesus knocks at the door, says, shut down your computers, stop your sales, you know, pack everything up and let's go. And Peter leaves everything and goes. And we have often a wrong attitude towards reading the text. We read the Peter story and we go like, wow, Peter, what a man of faith and power. I would like to be like Peter, but the emphasis on the story is somewhere else. The emphasis is on the miracle that the Jesus knocks at the door, says, shut down your computer, and you leave everything to follow him. The miracle lies in the words and in the authority and the power of Jesus to call Peter. The amazing thing that Peter leaves everything is not that Peter is grander or more noble than all the other people 
back then in the story. But the great thing is about that Jesus, when he calls, he has a supernatural power, a supernatural authority in, in his calling. And we will see that because there is going to be a pattern that's established. In chapter 1, verse, 20, uh, verse 21 to 28, Jesus rebukes, he speaks to a demon, and he casts him out with authority. And look at the, at the answer when the people see that, they say they were all amazed, a new teaching with authority. He even commands the unclean, unclean spirits, and they obey him. So do we see how the threat and the idea of authority starts to pick up? And it's going to move along all the sections that we are going to cover. In chapter 1, verse 29 to 30, till verse 34, Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law. The idea is he does that because he has authority. In chapter 1, verse 42 to 45, he is cleansing a leper. And remember how he cleanses a leper. It shows and it demonstrates his authority. The leper comes to Jesus and he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus does not say to the leper, well, let me pray to the Father for you. Maybe the Father can heal you. I will start a big intercession group or something like that. No, because he has himself authority. He speaks to the leper and he says, be clean. And he is cleansed immediately. And everybody marvels and wonders and says, who is this? Who has such authority to cleanse somebody from leprosy? In chapter 2, verse 1, verse 12, Jesus heals a paralytic. And you remember, the story is connected with the forgiving of sins. And the, disciple, and, and the enemies of Jesus... Uh, they are happy with somebody, you know, making somebody who is lame walk. But the claim that Jesus says to the man first, your sins are forgiven you, the outrage and says, well, who has the authority to forgive sins except God alone? And then Jesus comes and answers and so that you see that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I will say to the paralytic, rise and be healed. So the idea is, yes, he has authority to forgive sins, and yes, he has authority to say to a paralytic person, rise and walk. So the reader needs to start to get fascinated and puzzled about how that can be that there is somebody who looks like a mere man and yet he has such great authority. In chapter 2, verse 13 to 3, verse 6, Jesus is, is speaking with authority. Then we have our text and then we're going to look forward a little bit because the theme continues. In chapter 4, verse 1 to 34, Jesus teaches again with authority. In chapter 4, 35 to 41, Jesus stills the storm so that the people ask again, or the disciples ask again, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Here is somebody who has authority even over the natural world. Have you ever tried that? We love, our family loves to go to Greece. And uh, last week, uh, we met a family um, on the island of, where were we? Uh, Alonia, yeah, we were supposed to be on Alonisos. And they said they were so sick, they were vomiting all the way there because there was a big storm, the boat was going up and high, and I did not come up with the idea of asking them, well, why didn't you just rebuke the waves in the sea? <laughs> yeah. Because it is something that is out of our power. It is something that we usually do not do. It is an absolute miracle that somebody is right there and says, be still, and immediately that thing is dead quiet. And then in 521 to 43, we have a healing of the hemorrhaging woman and the raising of Jairus' daughter, and 
again, there is, it increases in intensity. Now we have somebody who has authority over death. So here we encounter a man again in the first passage where we read about that a lot of people are pressing towards him, are wanting to minister, or wanting ministry from him. And when you read the description where they are all from, you see that now the whole of Israel, Israel in its ancient, uh, most wide expansion is gathering together. Jesus is not just the local hero in the corner ministering, but he is introduced as the one who will restore the whole people of God, Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom, for those who are interested in Old Testament theology. And what happens is, again, in our passage, we see a Jesus who, who acts and speaks with authority because what happens, the text says that when, when, the, when the demons tell him or speak out to him, you are the Son of God, verse 12 says, he sternly warned them, he rebuked them that they should not make them known. What happens here is, as I told you, it is a preview of what will follow. It is a preview of another uh, a, a, a demon encounter scene that we will see in chapter 4. And what happens there is that when the demon, in the ancient world, we know from papyri, is that when you know, when somebody gets exorcised, um, let's say, I want to exorcise a demon, it is beneficial for me to know the name of the demon because then I have greater power over him. But if the demon finds out something about me, um, he has the power to resist the exhortation. And this is what happens in this text, in the demon story that will follow. The demons, they cry out and they say, we know who you are, you are the son of God. And so there is a devious, um, there is truth, and then with a mischievous intent, the demons try to resist the exhortation by Jesus. And what Jesus does, he says he rebukes them and he, the text says literally then, he muscles them up. The muscling up is the same word that we find later in, uh, in uh, where is it? Let me think for a second. Uh, it is in 1 Corinthians where it says you should, muscle, you should not muscle an ox while it treads out the grain. So the idea is you make somebody quiet and with the quiet is the idea you make somebody ineffective to speak and to resist and that person has to yield submission to you. So what even Jesus is doing in that text, when the demons are coming and they're shouting out, Jesus enforces submission of the demons to him. In the story, we see a man with incredible authority. And the reader should ask the question, when you read those stories, who in all the world is this man? And at this time, at this point, comes my favorite C.S. Lewis quote. And you probably know it by heart. <laughs> but it's, nevertheless, it is so good because it has something to do with the story. So I'll, I have my opportunity to bring out your very own and beloved C.S. Lewis. He said this, I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. The foolish thing is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. And let me add the thing, a man who did the things Jesus did. 
was not just a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. So the idea is when Jesus continuously claims from the Father to have authority to raise the dead, to judge the dead, to give eternal life to whomever he wishes, that man is either totally deceived or he is so mischievous that you should definitely not believe in him and certainly not call him a great moral teacher. You must make your choice, says C.S. Lewis. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it might seem, I have to accept the view that he was is almighty God. And let us not jump into the quick conclusion. Let us, when we read the story and Mark opens up the wonder of who this man is, let us, when he rebukes the demon and they immediately submit to him, and when he has authority over the natural world, let us not just come to the quick theological conclusion and say, oh yeah, he's God. He's the second part of the Trinity. I know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I heard that at the wedding um, of, who was it? Uh, the Prince, Prince, Prince Harry and Meghan. Did you, did you watch the wedding? I watched it. I love the liturgy. I love the liturgy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the name of the Holy Trinity. It came up about 24 times during the whole ceremony. The only thing I was wondering why people were saying it so often and not acting the way it was actually true. Because how can you address that Jesus as second person of the Trinity and live your life as though he has nothing to say in your life? When we read what Jesus did when we read that he comes and a force that is more powerful that you can handle because the strongest human being is helpless at the sight of a demon and only one person is able to enforce submission to that man or to that demon. When we see somebody who has authority over nature, when we see somebody who easily conquers death, the unavoidable enemy of all of us. You know, we as human beings, we face great challenges in the future. We have the carbon dioxide challenge. It is a, I believe it is a genuine challenge for humanity. But there are challenges greater than that. The greatest challenge we all face is death because we are utterly helpless in front of it. And then we meet somebody, the only person so far that the history of mankind has seen, who demonstrate visible authority and victory over our greatest enemy. His name is Jesus Christ. At that moment, you don't put him in your theological category and say, oh, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At that moment, you have to ask the question, what do you do with his authority in your life? 
that Jesus does not come with a demonstration of great authority so that we can have the theology right. That Jesus comes with great authority to answer a fundamental question of your life. Who has authority in your life? And so Christianity at its center is not a club where people gather because of common musical interest. Christianity is not a club where people join together for common spare time activities. Christianity is a group of people who together have answered the central question of life, namely, who has authority over your life? And that question of authority is not one that we answer begrudgingly. It's not the question, oh no, now somebody comes, he wants something from me. I think I resistantly because I have no other choice. Isn't that interesting that Christians have always joyfully accepted his authority? None of you who is here and says, I'm a follower of Christ, remembers the day when he has unwillingly knelt down and said, I hate to do it, but I give you my life. No, isn't it strange that all those who say that they follow Jesus remember the day when there was a certain joy and pleasure in their heart, where they had a certain expectation and hope of the good things that would come out of it when we submit to his authority. Is it not true that having Jesus as our authority is something delightful, is something pleasing, is something that puts our life in order, is something that opens up the gates of heaven for a joy and an expectation that we had, did not have before? Receiving an authority in our lives it is not always negative. Uh, I don't know how many songs you can remember, but very spontaneously some of them came to mind that we can sing. Um, I know my wife said, I, I should not sing, but uh, bear with me for a second. You can have it all, Lord, every part of my world. Take this life and breathe on that heart that is now yours. That doesn't sound like accepting an authority I surrender all I surrender all all to thee my blessed state that's why what I said I surrender all okay you get the point we love to yield to his authority we have a certain pleasure. There is something when we, when we sing those songs, when we worship, that we say, Jesus, I love your authority. Take my all. I am yours. Have you ever had that sense of feeling? Have you ever not sung and said, take me, Lord. I am yours. The words, I am yours, they convey a certain sense of goodness, of preciousness. You want him to have him as an authority over your life. It is a most desirable, beneficial rule that he brings into our lives. As I said, uh, we were together as a two couples in the Roman Verulamium Museum yesterday, and I learned something very interesting about you guys that have your roots here. Your ancestors did not resist the Roman rule when the Emperor Claudius invaded Britain. 
In fact, the Catavoloni tribe, I don't know, does anybody remember to be still part of that tribe? Maybe you are, maybe you are. If you're from here, maybe you are. But that tribe that settled here, that lived here, that had its roots here, welcomed Roman rule. The Romans came and all indications show that that tribe just said, well, great that you're here, guys. Why did they do that? You know, we always think like we need to resist and we need to now have freedom fighters or terrorists, as they are called in other languages, you know, rise up and resist any foreign rules on our lives. They did not because that tribe was convicted that Roman rule would bring benefits to their lives that otherwise they would not have. The rule of Christ, his authority in our lives is something we desire because it makes our life better than the way it is before. Christ's rule is right and pleasing. When he takes over our finances, we benefit. Not in the sense that since I have Christ, I quadrupled my income. But we benefit because it is right. And there is a sense of pleasure in relying on his provision and relinquishing our resources. There is a joy, there is a safety and security in saying everything I have is yours. I don't know if you're married, but have you, do you remember what your, your vows, what the vows that you said when you were married? Didn't they include everything that I am and everything I have is yours? Uh, how much dislike did you feel at that moment when you said that? How, how much did you resist that saying and say, well, it is demanded by the state. I will begrudgingly say that to you, my dearest wife, but I'm actually not meaning it. No, wasn't, it, wasn't there something that you felt your spouse so utterly desirable and knowing you cannot have the deepest union of trust and fellowship that you can have with her unless you relinquish all and give her everything that is yours and in turn receive everything that is hers to you. You receive for your own benefit or whoever married because they felt like they're receiving or their lives would be worse after they got married than before. You are convinced that your life after the vows is better than it is before. And the possibility is like that and should be held in front of it. And there are other reasons why sometimes it is not and you should go to counseling if it is not. Um, but there is a certain pleasure. There is a certain pleasure uh, to... To show, to see your beloved ones and says, all I have, all I am is yours. And there is a fellowship and a communion and a togetherness that you can only have if you say that. And if you make up a marriage contract and you say, we will say yes, but I will keep my, my sports car and you will keep your flower collection. That moment you do that, you are not married. As you are married on paper, but not in heart. It is the relinquishing of all that establishes a relationship. That's why people are, they never, you never ever, I, I can, you know, isn't that interesting? Whatever I'll try to do, you just don't give up everything to whatever comes up. You are resisting giving up what you own and what you have to whatever. But suddenly this beautiful lady walks into your life or whatever, or that wonderful future husband, and you're ready to say it and to do it. And says, well, here it is. And it's the same the same thing with Jesus. He comes with great authority, he demands all, and it is a pleasure and a delight, and we are better off after we have given him whatever he demands. 
Next thing. Now we come to the next section. Oh, by the way, how long do you want to listen to me? And don't tell me you're finished, please. <laughs> uh, 50 minutes, something like that. Okay, good. The next thing. Now we are in a pattern. I know it's been already 15 minutes since we read the text. But do you remember how Jesus calls the disciples? And do you remember the text? Um, maybe, maybe we can put the text on. Can we put the text on again, please? Uh, we keep that just for a second. I, I, yeah, one after. Third, perfect. Look at this. Here it says in verse 13, And he went up to the mountain, and he called to him those he himself wanted. And I put you the transliteration of the Greek right there in the end, because it is very interesting. He called proskaleo. Um, it's a very interesting word. It doesn't, we have to look at it, what it means in this context. He called his disciples. Didn't mean Jesus saying like, hello, anybody there? Anybody out there wanting to be in an adventure with me? But he called has again a ring because remember where we are. We are in the section of authority. Whenever Jesus says something, he does it with authority. The word he called his disciples has a sense of authority with it. And I've sh shown it to you right here. We have that same word a little later in Mark 15, verse 44. It says, Pilate marveled that Jesus was already dead and calling the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. And the idea rightly there, the translator uh, translated correctly, it says, he summoned the centurion. You know, when the governor calls somebody, he doesn't say to his soldiers, oh, is there, are there any volunteers out there? But he says, you there, come here. In the German way of saying it, not the British way of, uh, if you have some spare time tomorrow, you know. <laughs> you are summoned. Come here. And the voice has authority. And the people come and obey. And that is the very same thing, you know, for us. It reads so superficially like, well, he called them and they came. It's like my dinner party when I was, you know, inviting people for my birthday in October. I said, anybody want to come? And about seven of the ten people that I invited showed up. No, 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 no. This is different. This is different. This is Jesus singling people out and saying, come. And the answer is, and they all came. And the idea, again, is with authority. And we see, the, we see that because what happens in the text, everything that follows also is with authority. When Jesus names them and he says, I name you apostles, the idea of naming somebody implies again authority. Because we know stories from the Old Testament where somebody names somebody else. Adam receives authority to name the animals. That's why Adam, human be a human being, is put on top of the hierarchical structures by naming the animal animals, God has given us authority over them and we're supposed to exercise in a beneficial rule for the animals. There is a verse for you if you are into animal rights. Anyway, we're not there. God gives Abraham a new name in Genesis 17. It demonstrates that God has authority over Abraham. God gives Jacob a new name in Genesis 32 and this is exactly what we see here and this is the idea of why Simon is called Peter. The idea here is Jesus gives Peter a new identity and only somebody with authority can do that. And when James and John are named sons of thunder and nobody knows what, the name, what, what it means and why they're called that, certain is 
Jesus is investing something positive into their lives. He says to you, your old identity, your old nature doesn't exist anymore. I, as your powerful Lord, give you a new identity. I call you sons of thunder. That's what you are from now on. And that's who they are and what they were. The idea is when Jesus calls and he names them, he does it with authority. And again, this is, fits perfectly with the pattern in the Gospel of Mark because I have it uh, for you on a, on, a, on a slide right over here where, where we can see that, uh, that you maybe should look for that. There should be like a little text that says all the time that Jesus speaks. No, we use it after that one. Um, I would probably go a little bit earlier. A little earlier. A little before. Uh, a little bit before. Yeah, here we go. Um, I'm sorry, I don't do that on purpose. It just happened every single time that I have a concept and then I depart from it while I'm preaching. Uh, there exists a pattern of a call with divine authority. So there's a call, whenever there's a pattern, whenever we see Jesus calling somebody, there is authority goes out with it. Jesus speaks, be quiet and depart from him. And the unclean spirit obeys in chapter 1, verse 25 to 26. He says, be quiet, be still to the ferocious storm and the lake becomes completely still. Jesus says, Talita kum, and the small child rises from the dead. Chapter 5, verse 41, verse 42. Jesus says, Ephaphata, and the ears of the deaf man are opened. Chapter 7, verse 34 to 35. Jesus calls, May never anyone eat fruit from you again, and the fig tree is withered to the roots. Chapter 11, 14 and 20. Jesus cries out on the cross, and the heavy curtain of the temple is torn into two. In chapter 15, verse 38. Every single time Jesus calls out in the Gospel of Mark, it is a call with divine authority that accomplishes whatever Jesus does. The question again is, who is this Jesus. Jesus calls his disciples and they come to him. The call of Christ possesses a divine power which, in quotation mark, forces them to obedience. Now I want to, I want to show you two important things that are, that are, that will be, uh, that will be, I'm looking for a synonym for important as I'm preaching here, that will be of note, <laughs> uh, that will make a difference in our personal life. Did you notice that we are getting astounded of Jesus calling things with authority? He again, he seems to be doing what Almighty God, whose will is irresistible, he's doing it on earth. He calls whom he wants and they obey. And we go like, wonderful, wonderful Jesus. Now life is going to be so great. Now that I'm going to follow you, nothing will go wrong anymore. That was my conviction when I gave my life to, in, to Jesus in South Africa. I remember I give him my life. A little bit later, I go for a walk outside and I'm dreaming of the endless opportunities of living a life irresistible, problem-free, because I follow and I have gotten to know Almighty God in the face of Christ Jesus. And th there should be something like that. There should be a sense of wonder anew what the Almighty can do since we follow Jesus should be in our lives. But there is a little bit of a ring of a different story. At the end of the passage, did you notice, says something very interesting. It says, and he called Judas who is going to betray him. 
And you go like, no, 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 no. That doesn't belong to the text because if he calls sovereignly, there shouldn't be any betraying and there shouldn't be going anything wrong. Did you see that? Do you see that theological discrepancy? But this discrepancy is there to teach us about the nature of the Christian life. We live in an interesting tension. At once we follow the sovereign Lord who's to whom all things are possible. And at the same time, there is purposeful, although we, have, we don't know why it is, suffering and misfortune in our lives. Deal with it the rest of your life. That tension will never go away. It's part and parcel of the Christian faith. About four or five years ago, I was called with a fellow elder and into an emergency meeting in the hospital. One of our members, a lady in her late 50s, um, was about to get her diagnosis. And we come there and we listen together as the doctor speaks to her and says, it is blood cancer. And at that moment, he pronounced that, just you can just feel the atmosphere of the room. Oh, the hopelessness that sets in. We had expected to do so many more things. We had expected to travel here, to do this, to do that. And then suddenly everything hangs on the word cancer. And at that moment, my friend and I, we had a word in our hearts to speak to that lady. And that word was, that sickness is not unto death. And I told her and I said, I'm going to say to you a word, but it's not the word only. You also need to hear the explanation. And I said to the lady, I feel God is speaking over your situation. That sickness is not unto death. And I said to her, I don't think I have the interpretation. I know it can be heard two ways. It can be heard, the Lord will heal you. Or it can be heard, this will kill you, but it will not kill you. This will catapult you into eternal life. And I said to you, as a theologian, I'm presenting you the word because I think God will speak hope into your situation, but I do not have the interpretation, and I think probably God might not give it to you. The next weeks, months, or years, or decades, however long you will live, you will probably have to live with the tension that this thing, guarantee, will not lead you to death. It will not be unto death. But who knows if it's physical death or a deliverance from spiritual death. Only for the second, we have a sure guarantee from our Lord. That lady lived another four years and then died and went gloriously to be with the Lord. And I think that is our situation, perhaps. Maybe not today, but, you know, as a, as a preacher from afar, I have a certain liberty to speak to you that, and is cautious to speak to you because you might not like him after what he says. But I don't care because I'll leave tomorrow. <laughs> but as a church and as an individual, we all need to be prepared. This might happen to us. We don't need to walk around fearful with the striking lightning over our heads all the time. But a sense of expectations of the goodness of God following us and the sense of expectation also that if something that happens to us that appears not good for us in the first moment, God is still in control. He is sovereignly in control. Every church needs to be prepared for that because we never know when it will happen. 
It might happen, and the Lord has a good plan for it. Okay, but this is not the most important point. I want to, but it is an important point. I want to show you one more thing about evangelism, about the commissioning of the disciples. Now we can use that almost last slide with the two arrows going this way. When we, when we, see, thank you, when we see Jesus, and when we see how Jesus deals with the, with the disciples, I think that every story that Jesus does something with the disciples, it has an element of discontinuity, an element of continuity with it. That means it has something to do with your life in certain aspects, and it doesn't have certain things to do, uh, certain things in your life, in, in, in your, or certain aspects don't apply to your life. So for, let me give you an example. Here in the story, Jesus clearly calls the 12 to be apostles. You don't, I hope you don't read the story and conclude that since you're also a disciple, you're also an apostle. Because that is not true. There is something individual that was true intrinsically of the 12 and only of the 12. There is some discontinuity between the story and your story. But at the same time, there is also some continuity in the story. Because if it's not, we're just reading at those stories, you know, some liberal churches and say, well, this might have happened in this form or another form in another, but it has certainly nothing to do with my life. No, this, the text speaks to you. There is some continuity. You are in the story, and you're supposed to find yourself in the story. And I also, I just want to, because the time is almost out, I want to talk with you in the last few minutes about whether there is continuity in the story. The continuity in the story is that Jesus, with the same authoritative call, called you. When he called you, he didn't just send out invitation to mass humanity saying, whoever wants eternal life, you know, I'm busy somewhere else, you can knock at my door and Peter will open to you. When the call came to you, it came specifically, Jesus Christ, knowing you, having predestined you, having selected you, and when he called you and said, come and follow me, and you bowed your knee and you said, yes, Lord, take it all, it is yours, it is ultimately due to the effective sovereign call of the risen Savior. Yes, did you volunteer? Did you say out of your own heart and your own free will, yes, Lord, take it. Of course, Jesus didn't drag you into Forest Town Church, even though you didn't want to. You came voluntarily. But where did you voluntarily will to obey the heat, the call of Jesus come from? It is part and parcel of his sovereign will. It is the same thing you are in this story, like in the story of Lydia, when Paul preached and the Lord opened her heart to heed the things of Lydia. And now this opens up an exciting opportunity, an exciting possibility for how we do evangelism. Because we have a commission on our life to reach our neighbors and to bless them with little kisses of the presence of Jesus Christ. And we shrink back from the word evangelism, it is the bad word in the church, because of several reasons. We don't like the rejection, and also because we feel like it doesn't work and it feels like we have to do so much, we have to sort of wrestle our neighbor and force him to accept something that he doesn't want to accept. And it's not necessary. I think the only thing, remember my own story, and now you know that I'm at the end because I'm usually when the preacher takes a story that he's told in the beginning and he comes to the, retells it at the, at the end, then you know sort of the thing is complete and it's called an inclusio and whatever. 
So, <laughs> so there's hope. I'm almost finished. Remember my story. I only received a small kiss from William Damsel, and the rest was up to the sovereign Lord. Imagine what would happen and we just give a little kiss of the presence and goodness and kindness of Jesus to our friends and neighbors we know. That story with William Damsel took an interesting turn. When I became a Christian, I went up to his house a few days later. I knocked at his door. I had some pieces of cake that I baked myself. Uh, I said, William, here's a little piece of cake. I became a believer, and I imagined, I hoped he would fall around my neck Untypical, like the British, you know, more like some, more like the, more like the Greek people do, uh, you know. Warm culture, full on me. And say, I'm so happy, brother. Come in, you know. Let's have a coke together. Let's celebrate. William looked at me and said, "Thank you very much," and took the plate and closed it up. <laughs> and so I get like, well, that was strange, you know, but maybe, you know, I'm not accustomed to Christianity, you know, maybe there is something special that I don't know, I miss. So a second try, a couple of days later, because I needed to retrieve my plate where the, you know, where the, where the cake was on, knock at the door again, said, William, I read the Bible, I love Jesus. And he says, well, here's your plate, you know, goodbye. <laughs> Uh, I met William one more time, and then there was a time gap of about four years. Four years later, I, I try a fourth time. I knock at his door. I say, William, uh, here I am. I don't know if you remember me, um, but by the way, I'm now uh, leaving for the United States because I'm studying theology. And like the southern Greek people, he falls around my neck and he hugs me. He says, I'm so happy for you. I'm rejoicing. You know, it's your... And then I look at him and I just say, William. Please, I mean, I've told you already four times. What's wrong with you? And he said to me, you know what? When you came to me for the first couple of times, I didn't believe you that you became a Christian. And I go like, why didn't you believe me? And he said, I never thought that the Lord can use me to lead somebody to Christ. Who of us and you only need to raise your hand spiritually. Who of us ever thinks that the Lord cannot use you to lead somebody to Christ? Isn't it many of us? And I think all the Lord asks us to do, maybe we can do the last, the last slide, do something simple. Do something simple and purposefully ask God, Lord, give me an opportunity to give somebody a small kiss of who you are. It doesn't have to be the full gospel from Adam to Revelation. Yes, of course, if somebody becomes a Christian, he needs to know the central core truth of who Christ is, that he has died for that person on the cross, offers forgiveness if that person, out of the sheer grace, receives that forgiveness and surrenders life to him. But it's not necessary to present the full gospel at every instance. It's sometimes just necessary to give a little kiss to somebody and then do this. Watch the sovereign Lord call people to himself. And I want to leave you with this and I want to open to you a little ministry time that if you don't have to leave yet, let's linger a little bit into the presence of the Lord. And I want to invite 
some people to come to the front to pray for you. Yesterday night, as I, as I asked God, what can we pray for? I had a, after consulting my wife, and she always, this is her idea, because she always has the great ideas. Um, we felt that perhaps we should pray for some people who have, who are fearful of surrendering certain aspects of their lives to Jesus. And that happens to me as well. Uh, even though I am the great and awesome preacher, uh, I, I am just like you. And when we receive an unexpected blessing of money, I sometimes have that thing where I call like, no, 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 this is not yours, this is finally mine, 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 and finally I can do with that money whatever I want to. And sometimes I don't want to ask the question, I quickly want to buy something I want to buy for a long time. I, and I have this in my heart where I know actually the first thought should be, this is yours, what should we do with it? I resist it sometimes because I'm fearful Jesus takes it away from me and does something else with it that I don't want. <laughs> And, this, and this is the way in, in many other areas of our lives. When it comes to sexuality, you know, we'll make great promises, but then that beautiful lady stands in front of us and we say, no, don't let me even ask what your will is, Lord, let me do my thing. And is it not better to submit all of our lives to his beneficial authority? If there is something in your life where you say, yes, I love Jesus, but there is sometimes this thing where I don't want to surrender, I want you to come forward and we'll pray for you. And the other thing I want, to, I want to invite you, if you want to join the adventure of kissing some people deliberately with a little kiss of the reality of Christ, if you have a desire in your heart where you go like, I want to join, I want to see the sovereign Jesus call out people, I want to be some of those who sit down purposely with a sheet of paper and say, God, give me names. Whom do I know with my friends? And give me some creative ideas what I can do with them, where I can invite them to Christmas celebration, or what book I can give to them, or what SMS or WhatsApp message I can send to them. Give me something creative how I can bless them and touch their heart. If you want to be part of the journey, let's come and let's pray together that the Holy Spirit might give us a seal, a joy, an expectation, and creative ideas to bless people with the presence of God. Shall we do that? I'm going to ask Dirk just to pray, and then uh, we're going to go and have coffee, but let's, let's let the Lord come now and minister to these people. Our good and heavenly Father, always trustworthy, always faithful, our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ, whom we follow because you first loved us and you've given your life to us, who never takes anything from us unless it is the best for us and for your great glory. I pray that you give every one of those people who are here and who would love to surrender but are sometimes in their daily lives are fearful of letting go. I pray for a new sense of touch of the goodness and reliability of Jesus Christ. I pray for a deep conviction that whatever it is we have or we own is in much better hands when they are in yours than when they are in our own. And I pray for that joy and that hope of delightfully giving up and surrendering to you and saying, it is yours, Lord Jesus. 
And I also pray that there would be a sense of excitement, a sense of an, of an urge and a sense of joy of walking along with the sovereign Jesus who has power to call people out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you release boldness to speak, daring to risk things don't unless we have your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would bring creative thoughts and ideas to some of those people who want to reach their families and want to reach their friends. I pray that as they sit down in the evening, take their notebook or their journal and ask the question to you, Lord, show me something how I can bless them. I pray that you would speak creatively and with hope and with joy and with an expectation in their lives. And I pray that this church will see a celebration of new people coming in because of simple acts of love and truth spoken and the sovereign Lord extending his hand and calling to himself those whom he wants. I pray for you and I bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Dirk.